Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Internet Radio. Internet Radio, right. <sighs> Today is Friday, Mar- Friday, April 2nd. I'm off to a great start, I'm sorry. Friday, April 2nd, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I begin, I want to make an announcement. I hardly ever make an announcement. I, I really hate announcements, I think. Christiani has a new P.O. Box. It is P.O. Box 9979, Panama City Beach, Florida, 32417. It is on the contact page at the main website. Just go to christiani.org and click contact at the main menu at the top or just go to christiani.org slash contact and it will bring you to that page. I say this because I had changed the P.O. Box on a website about five months ago, perhaps, but I still have the old P.O. Box, so it's still valid. It's valid until April 6th, which is Tuesday, I think, maybe. So people are still sending a lot of mail to the old P.O. Box, and I will put in a change of address with the post office when the P.O. Box expires early this week. But I can't um, ensure that that's really going to work at all or work past a couple of months. This evening, we are going to present part 27 of our commentary on the Wisdom of Solomon, and it is titled The Light of Day. In sharp contrast, pun intended, to the last presentation, which was titled The Dark of Night. But before we begin our commentary on this 18th chapter of the Wisdom of Solomon, I would like to make a few notes regarding its timeliness, since here Solomon continues to discuss the very first Passover. By my reckoning, which may not be perfect, the ancient Israelite calendar had to be fixed to the agricultural cycle of the land in which they lived, or it would not serve them. So the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Weeks, as it was called, being seven weeks after the Passover, had to come at the same time every year, or the First Fruits would not be available at the proper time for the feast. Likewise, the Feast of Tabernacles had to correspond with the time of the harvest, or there would not have been food sufficient for such a holiday. In Exodus chapter 23, we see in a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles that it was also called the Feast of Ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. There is another reference to tabernacles as ingathering in Exodus chapter 34 in verse 22, which also shows that it was a feast related to the harvest and therefore dependent on the harvest. No harvest, no feast, no turkey, no thanksgiving. It's that simple. So for this reason, that the calendar and the agricultural cycle had to remain in consistent harmony with one another. 
The year itself must have started at the same time on the same date from one year to the next. Now, Easter, as it's celebrated by Roman Catholics, which basically corresponds to the Passover, as it is on the Jewish calendar. And believe me, no Jew ever participated as a farmer in an agricultural society with any success. They just don't do that. They loan money to farmers, but they generally don't farm. The Jews as a whole have never been an agricultural society because they are not the Israelites of the Old Testament. But the Jewish calendar swings by as many as 30 days from one year to the next, just like the Catholic reckoning for the date of Easter. You cannot have a calendar dependent on the agricultural cycle in any particular location swing from by 30 days from one year to the next and still have tabernacles at harvest time and first fruits at the time for first fruits. I'm sorry, it's not possible. You save your first fruits, they'll be rotting on a shelf. They didn't have pasteurization and, and refrigeration in those days or vacuum-sealed containers. So the calendar and the cycle of agriculture had to remain in consistent harmony with one another. So for that reason, the year itself must have started at the same time and on the same date from one year to the next. The feasts were set to fixed dates in the year. They didn't move around, so there was no waiting around for first fruits to ripen. Therefore, while it is not mentioned in Scripture, that date must have been the day following the observation of the vernal equinox which for us marks the first day of spring. It has long been recognized by archaeologists that ancient stone circles and other monuments such as those at Stonehenge or at Newgrange in Ireland were constructed with features marking the dates of equinoxes and solstices. The vernal equinox occurred on March 20th this year, 2021. Then, as the scriptures command, the 14th day from that day would be April 3rd on our calendars. And therefore, on this very evening, April 2nd, the Passover should begin in spite of whatever calendar is kept by the Jews or the Roman Catholics or other denominations. There is one caveat, however, which is that some years of our calendar the vernal equinox occurs on March 19th, and some years not until March 21st. So the Passover date would move accordingly. However, even among identity Christians who agree with this in principle, there are differences based on the time of day at which the equinox occurs, because the interpretations of evening in Scripture are quite subjective. At 11 p.m. on the 19th, for example, the equinox is not visible, although it nevertheless occurred. So being visible at the dawn of the next day, perhaps that should be reckoned as the day of the equinox, and the year should begin as if it had occurred 
on the 20th. Even the time of the change of date on our calendar or clock, which is arbitrarily set at midnight, is subjective. In any event, Passover this year can be record can be reckoned as beginning this very evening, Friday, April 2nd. Although for my part, I would consider it to begin right around what we call midnight. The Israelites taking their lamb and slaughtering it in the evening, as we read in the account of the first Passover, and then being expected to roast and eat it that same evening. Surely it would not be cooked and ready to eat until midnight, or at least close to midnight. This we read in Exodus chapter 12, concerning the Passover lamb. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. In my opinion, the end of the evening was the end of dusk. But the Israelites did not have any technical concept of a new day of a new day beginning at any precise minute. So the day began at dawn the next morning. For the sake of counting, the equinox would be reckoned for that new day if it had occurred in the night. But in any event, although the moment of Passover seems to be upon us according to the Old Testament scriptures, now Christ is our Passover. As Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we are, or we at least hope to be, never without him. As we have discussed while presenting the later chapters in this commentary on wisdom, Solomon has been contrasting the various torments which had come upon the Egyptians for their destruction to the various torments which the children of Israel had suffered in the events of the Exodus, but were for their chastisement and correction, and for their ultimate preservation rather than their destruction. So throughout Wisdom chapter 17, we had discussed Solomon's description of the night of the first Passover and the death of the Egyptians, which he had attributed to the various apparitions and hallucinations which were caused by their own delusions, and which in turn had resulted in causing them to die in fear on account of their own superstitions and the burdens of their own consciences. Now, in Wisdom chapter 18, Solomon contrasts the very different experience and fate of the Israelites during the time of that same event although he continues to describe the fate of the Egyptians in comparison. Doing this, he uses the entire event as an example, making an analogy which compares the death of the Egyptians who had oppressed the righteous 
to the salvation of the righteous. This analogy actually evokes and even continues the theme which Solomon had presented in the opening chapters of Wisdom, where he described the wicked as oppressing the righteous in their desire to rule over them, and even wanting to kill them if they became an obstruction by their righteousness. So essentially, Solomon is also using this event from history, which is the Egyptian enslavement of the Hebrews who had formerly been their friends and guests, as an example which proves the thesis that he had described in the opening chapters of the work, notably in Wisdom chapter 2. So while the Egyptians had suffered in the dark of night, at that same time the children of Israel had enjoyed the protection of the light of day. Therefore, in the opening verse of this 18th chapter of Wisdom, after Solomon had explained that because of their delusions, the Egyptians were unto themselves more grievous than the darkness, further addressing God directly in his prayer, he now proclaims that nevertheless, in Wisdom chapter 18, verse 1, Nevertheless, thy saints had a very great light, whose voice they, hearing and not seeing their shape, because they had also not suffered the same things, they counted them happy. There are some technical difficulties with the translation of this verse in the King James Version, and we really should not offer a commentary until they are corrected. So we would translate it to read. But upon your saints... There was a great light of things which the voice indeed hearing, but the form not seeing. Then because they had not suffered those things, they were blessed. Where the King James Version has whose voice, the relative pronoun is a plural genitive form which may be either masculine or neuter. But we must interpret it as being neuter, as it refers back to the neuter singular noun for light, even though the plural, the pronoun is plural, the things of the light. They didn't hear, or I'm sorry, they heard but did not see the things of the light. Where the King James Version has, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. In Wisdom chapter 17, Solomon had described the sounds which the Egyptians had heard in the dark of night as a whistling wind or a melodious noise of birds among the spreading branches or a pleasing fall of water running violently or a terrible sound of stones cast down or a running that could not be, that could not be seen of skipping beasts or a roaring voice of most savage wild beasts, or a rebounding echo from the hollow mountains. So here it is evident that the pronoun refers to these things, which the Israelites in their houses had evidently also heard. But because they were in the light of day, rather than the dark of night, even though they did not see the source of the noises, they did not suffer from them, so they were blessed. The Egyptians being slaughtered, Solomon is suggesting that the great light served to protect the Israelites. Likewise, in Wisdom chapter 2, we read, For if the just man be the son of God, 
he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. Now referring to the aftermath of the event in verse 2. But for that they did not hurt them now, of whom they had been wronged before. They thanked them and besought them pardon for that they had been enemies. And while the sense of this translation is acceptable, we would prefer to translate the verse more accurately. But because they did not injure those having first done wrong, they were thankful and for their differences they begged kindness. In this translation, we have taken a slight liberty to clarify the meaning of the phrase to dianek fenahi, to dianek fenahi. That's a compound word. It's a word with two prepositions and a root, for which we may write, for that having differed, or perhaps for of which differing. The verb is an aorist tense infinitive, and with the article, it is an an articular infinitive, which has the function of both noun and verb forms, sort of at the same time. So, in our translation, we interpret it as a substantive, as a noun, and add a pronoun which is not in the text for the purpose of clarification, as the differences begging the favor belong to the Egyptians. It is the Egyptians who had first done the Hebrews wrong by enslaving them and attempting to force them to expose their newborn sons. Here Solomon seems to be alluding to the circumstance that the Egyptians were at this point quite vulnerable after the deaths of all of their firstborn sons. And therefore, the Israelites may have taken the opportunity to cause them much greater harm. So he is describing the Egyptians as having been thankful for that and begging kindness from Israel in spite of having abused them in the past, in spite of their differences, Solomon basically putting it very lightly. Perhaps it is that thankfulness by which the Egyptians accommodated the Israelites who then borrowed all of their valuables, by which they had allowed themselves to be plundered. The veracity of this interpretation by Solomon is evident in the account of the initial Egyptian reaction to the killing of the firstborn as it is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, where we read, And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, For they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Now Solomon reveals the source of that great light which the Israelites had enjoyed while the Egyptians were trembling in the darkness. Instead whereof, thou, you, addressing God, gave them a pillar, a burning pillar of fire, 
both to be a guide of the unknown journey and a harmless son to entertain them honorably. The adverb, a blabase, harmless here, is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean without harm, unharmed, unhurt, secure, or in an active sense, not harming, harmless, innocent, and then averting or preventing harm. It is that last sense in which we would prefer to interpret it here, although when we translate it, which we will do momentarily, we shall write harmless as it better fits the grammar of the passage, in my opinion. The word for entertain, zenataya, that's related to the word xenos, which is a guest friend, translated as a verb in the King James Version, is actually a noun defined as a living abroad of someone who would therefore be a xenos, a stranger in the King James Version, or properly a guest in a foreign land. The root xenia refers to the rights of a guest, to hospitality or to a friendly reception. We shall translate xenataya as hospice here. As the word hospice originally described a lodging for travelers. That's what it originally meant from the Latin word hospitum. The form of philotemus, which is honorably here, is an adjective and not an adverb. And it means loving honor, covetous of honor, ambitious, emulous, but also munificent or generous, among other possibilities. We are persuaded that generous is the proper interpretation in the context here. Therefore, we would translate this verse to read, verse 3, instead of which, a flaming pillar, both to be a guide for the unknown journey and a harmless son of lavish or generous hospice you had provided. Solomon is describing the pillar fire which accompanied the Israelites in the Exodus as a guide for their journey and as a shelter preventing them from harm while at the same time providing them with comfort. Here Solomon explains that the pillar of fire had first appeared during the night of the first Passover as a light which also comforted the children of Israel during the time of the suffering of the Egyptians rather than the moment when they first departed from Egypt as the Exodus account implies in the closing verses of its 13th chapter. There we read in the account of the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. However, that description in Exodus chapter 13 does not preclude the possibility that the pillar of fire may have also been present the evening before.
which is when the Passover is described as having occurred. As we have said before, both Solomon, as well as Paul of Tarsus, evidently had access to descriptions of the Exodus beyond what we have in our current Bibles. I'm not going to guess which apocryphal book it was. That's immaterial. I'm not going to guess if it was any of the apocryphal books which we currently have access to or not. That's immaterial. There are books which were mentioned in ancient times, which I don't even think are extant any longer today. Something comes to mind about a book of Janes and Jambres. As Paul had mentioned, Janus and Jambres. Now, that might be a late Christian invention because Paul mentioned them. I don't know. I don't remember ever reading it, but I've seen it mentioned. I'm not saying that that's what Solomon had or that's what Paul had. There are other apocryphal works which mention Janus, as we've seen, I believe, in our last presentation. He was actually mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Janus and Jambres, if you don't remember, being the names of the at least two of the magicians who withstood Moses, according to Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Now referring once again to the Egyptians, for they were worthy to be deprived of light and imprisoned in darkness, who had kept thy son shut up, by whom the uncorrupt light of the law was to be given to the world. And there is a form of the verb mellow in the text, which is not represented in the King James translation. It means to think of doing, to intend to do, to be about to do. So without translating the entire verse anew, we would at least insert the word about and write the end of the verse to read by whom the uncorrupt light of the law was about to be given unto the world. So the Egyptians, for reason of their blindness to the truth and for their idolatry and their sin, were worthy of being deprived of light. Yet by the children of Israel did the light of the law come into the world. However, as we discuss the end of this chapter, in verse 24, we shall see that Solomon defines world somewhat differently than we may expect, where he says, for in the long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the fathers graven, and my majesty upon the diadem of his head. Making that statement, Solomon professes that, ostensibly from the time Abraham was called, the children of Israel alone are the world, exclusive of all other nations and peoples. The fulfillment of that statement is found in the books of the prophets and in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, and that is the attention of God to make it so. And therefore, the children of Israel are the world. Speaking of the light of the law, in the 36th Psalm, we read, 
for with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Light is an allegory for the truth of God, as well as being a symbol for his presence in the world. It is not a coincidence that shortly after the time of the Exodus, when Moses had recorded the account of creation, the first words which Yahweh is portrayed as having uttered are, let there be light. In the first day of creation described in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, Yet the physical sources of light, which man may perceive, the sun, moon, and stars, were not created until the fourth day of creation, which is described in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. So ostensibly, that first light, which man never saw, was an announcement of the physical presence of God in the world. That first manifested itself as this fire, which is recorded in the accounts of the Exodus. And then, as Yahshua Christ himself, the light come into the world. Only in his light may men truly see. And even those who can see in this world may actually be blind. For example, as we read in John chapter 9, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not, might see, and that they which see might be made blind. So the light of which Solomon had spoken here is not a reference to the sun, as these events had occurred during the dark of night. Nor is it a mere reference to the pillar of fire, even if the pillar of fire is representative of the light. Rather, the light is Yahweh God himself, or at least an angel, and I will explain that in a moment, an angel which is not necessarily a person, but a physical representation of the invisible God. For that reason, the burning in the bush was described as an angel in Exodus chapter 3, and the pillar of fire was also described as an angel in Exodus chapter 14. First, for example, in Exodus chapter 3, we read, And the angel of Yahweh appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And I must say that the bush was not burnt for the same reason that Solomon had explained in earlier chapters, that when Yahweh is controlling the elements, they will burn who he will, and they will not burn who he will. <laughs> so when the place came upon Egypt the Israelites were not harmed from them, yet the Egyptians were. We discussed that, I think, two or three presentations ago. Here I'm winging it because I didn't realize I should have put that in my notes, but I should have. And when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, 
God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So was it an angel in the bush or was it God? And the burning fire is described as an angel because it's not really God. It's a messenger. It's a physical manifestation representing God, representing the presence of God. So in this account, in Exodus chapter 3, the angel is not a person, but a natural phenomenon which was used as a medium by which the invisible God made his presence known to a man. Moses. For that reason alone, it was called an angel. But when Moses turned to investigate the fire in the bush, the voice which he heard was also manifested by God. And the voice attested that it was God, and not some other being representing God. So it said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Likewise, in Exodus chapter 14, we read, And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. That angel refers to that pillar. That's a Hebrew parallelism. It wasn't that an angel went and then that the pillar went. It's that the entire pillar went and, and the pillar is at first identified as the angel. The physical phenomenon representing the fact that God was with them, representing God. Later, in, I'm sorry, earlier in Exodus chapter 13, we had read that, and Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. One verse does not contradict another. And God didn't need a rest and got an angel to take his place. <laughs> One verse does not contradict another. But rather, the pillar of fire, which by itself would not be a conscious entity, was a symbol representing the presence of Yahweh God as he is invisible and used the pillar of fire as a medium or angel representing his presence. So Yahweh was the light of day which sheltered the Israelites in the dark of night and during the exodus and a long period of wandering in the desert. Therefore, while sometimes angels are men, and apparently even supernatural men, angels are not always men. The word for angel, either in Hebrew or in Greek, only means messenger. And it is not always men who are chosen to deliver a message from God, especially where, in cases such as the Exodus, he chose to deliver his messages directly. But Yahshua Christ is a man, and he is Yahweh God incarnate. And the Apostle John, in his gospel, had informed us that he is the true light come into the world. Of course, at that time, the sun, moon, and stars were already illuminating the world. But they are not the true light, which is ostensibly that first light which Yahweh had created, but which was never otherwise identified by man. 
because only God could make it manifest as he did in Christ. Therefore, in John chapter 1, we see his record concerning John the Baptist, where he wrote, The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, meaning John, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light which lights every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew it not. Joshua Christ, the physical manifestation of Yahweh in the world. There's no more need for pillars of fire and pillars of smoke and burnings in bushes. So later on we read in John chapter 12, immediately after he had made a prescient reference to his impending crucifixion, then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. But while you have light, believe in the night in the light that you may be children of light. These things spoke Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Then a little further on he proclaimed, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. This is the true light of day, which brings light even in the dark of night. And all those who are not in Christ are not worthy of light. Therefore Solomon turns once again to the Egyptians, explaining why they were worthy to be deprived of light and imprisoned in darkness. In verse 5, and when they had determined to slay the babes of the saints, one child being cast forth and saved to reprove them, thou tookest away the multitude of their children and destroyed them altogether in a mighty water. Throughout wisdom, Solomon has exhibited the fact that Yahweh God often punishes men with their own delusions. And this analogy is yet another example of that phenomenon. The Egyptians had devised to eliminate the multiplying Hebrews by whom they had felt threatened by forcing them to expose their males to die in the river. So one such exposed child, Moses, was saved from the mighty water by an Egyptian and even raised as a prince of Egypt, for the intent that he would ultimately be used by God as a vehicle for the destruction of Egypt. So in that manner, the life of Moses was in itself a rebuke to the Egyptians, that they themselves would be destroyed as a result of their own plans, and they would do it to themselves. So Solomon says in verse 6, of that night where our fathers certified a four, and yes, we will retranslate this verse, that assuredly knowing unto what oaths they had given credence, they might afterwards be of good cheer. I guess the British have been using that word cheer for millennia. <laughs> Some of the language here is quite archaic. 
So we would translate this verse to read, That night was made known beforehand to our fathers, in order that knowing with certainty, having faith in the oaths, they would rejoice. A promise or statement of intent to do something beforehand could indeed be described as an oath. It really is an oath. This event, wherein the children of Israel knew beforehand of the deaths of the firstborn of Egypt, transpired over a period of several days, at least five or six, and possibly even a little longer than that. So we read in Exodus chapter 11, a passage which also elucidates one way in which Moses had become a reproach to the Egyptians, by becoming as famous to them as were their own rulers. And Yahweh gave the people favor inside of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith Yahweh, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. There had already been at least six plagues upon Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that ye may know how that Yahweh does put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. I didn't look at the Hebrew of that. Perhaps it should be, and he went out leaving Pharaoh in a great anger. Then in Exodus chapter 12, we see that the Egyptians had been warned of this even before the children of Israel themselves had learned it, where we read, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers. A lamb for a house. Now, it doesn't say on the morrow or tomorrow, so it doesn't seem to be the ninth of the month. I don't think it'd be any later than the eighth of the month. And it's probably earlier than that. So if it's the eighth of the month, that would be six days notice, which the children of Israel had of this Passover and the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. So they had at least six days notice. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it, according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. 
So we see that the Israelites, and therefore also the Egyptians, were given these instructions of what to do on the first Passover, sometime before the 10th day of the month, and therefore at least six or more days before the 14th day of the month. I should have said the Israelites, according to the warning given the Egyptians. So continuing from that same place, we read in chapter 6, I'm sorry, in verse 6 of Exodus chapter 12, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat flesh in that night, roasted with fire. Now that would take a few hours, I believe, to prepare, which is why I say they probably didn't eat until close to midnight. And unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So with their keeping of these instructions for the Passover, over a week after they had received them, indicates that they did celebrate in the certainty that all of those things of which they were forewarned would indeed come to pass. Therefore Solomon says, So all thy people was accepted, both the salvation of the righteous and the destruction of the enemies. They knew over a week ahead of time that they would be preserved while their enemies would be destroyed at least the firstborn of their enemies. And their having followed the instructions was by itself a sign of acceptance and actually a favorable acceptance. The Greek word for accepted here is a form of the verb prosdekomahi. And while dekomahi by itself is to receive or accept, prostekomahi is to receive or accept favorably, to be in favorable expectation of something, which seems to indicate that the Israelites were eager to see the oaths fulfilled, the promises of what would happen to the Egyptians and to themselves. 
So Solomon continues his interpretation of the significance of the event in verse 8 of Wisdom chapter 18. For, well, for wherewith thou did punish our adversaries, by the same thou did glorify us whom thou hast called. When we discussed Wisdom chapter 16, we commented on how the events of the Exodus and the things which Yahweh did for the children of Israel had indeed been heard by the peoples of the surrounding nations, which certainly would glorify the children of Israel in the eyes of their enemies. So even after the death of Moses, this is apparent in the words of Rahab, the innkeeper of Jericho, where she said, as it is recorded in Joshua chapter 2, and this is probably 50 years later or close, at least 40-something, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Now Solomon continues in reference to Israel in verse 9. For the righteous children of good men did sacrifice secretly, and with one consent made a holy law, that the saints should be like partakers of the same good and evil, the fathers now singing out the songs of praise. Wow. While the sense of this translation is nearly acceptable, it's not the father's singing. It's the father's being sung of. That's a large mistake on the portion of the King James Version. The word for made is dia, dia tithemi. Dia tithemi would be better. I'm so accustomed to saying dia because of English. Diagram, diaphragm, <sighs> diameter. Dia tithemi, which is used in a wide range of contexts, one of them being to act upon a thing. The children of Israel certainly did not make the divine decrees, but rather they only acted upon the commandments of Yahweh brought to them by Moses. So for that and other reasons, we would translate this verse to read. For secretly sacrificed the righteous children of good men, and in harmony acted upon the divine law for the saints to partake equally of the same things, both of good and of danger, while already singing the praises of the fathers. The secret sacrifice was made in the preparation of the Passover lambs. The children of Israel must have been the keepers of their own flocks and therefore had access to a sufficient number of lambs because the Egyptians themselves apparently despised the trade of shepherd. As it is stated in Genesis chapter 46, in words attributed to Joseph, that Every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Then, by saying good men here, 
Solomon refers to the fathers, which he mentions at the end of the verse, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, doing so, he depicts the children of Israel as having been granted liberty from captivity and favored by God on their behalf, on the father's behalf. And therefore, they are pictured in turn as singing praises, the praises of the fathers, since they must have known that they were favored over the Egyptians on their account by undertaking in harmony to follow the commandments concerning the Passover. The children of Israel had committed themselves to whatever the result would be, to either the good things or the dangerous things which would lie ahead. They didn't know. Now Solomon turns his attention once again to the Egyptians, still describing the same Passover night in verse 10. But on the other side, there sounded an ill according cry, an ill according, that's one word, ill according, an ill according cry of the enemies. And a lamentable noise was carried abroad for children that were bewailed. Where the King James Version has, on the other side, there sounded. It comes from a single word. The word antakai, which is a sound in response or a sound in answer, may have been better translated, in response there sounded. The ill-according cry of the enemies is an asymphonos, asymphonos, or discordant cry, asymphonos. A concordant cry would be a symphony, asymphonos, the word we get symphony from. Discordant is that word negated, asymphonos. In contrast to the children of Israel, who had acted in homonoia, or harmony, and sang the praises of their fathers. According to Liddell and Scott, in the medium voice as it is here, the verb threneo was used in the active sense to be well, perhaps for oneself, rather than to be bewailed, as the King James Version has it here. We would translate the verse to read, but in response, but in response to the children of Israel being in agreement and singing the praises of the fathers, but in response there sounded the discordant cry of the enemies, and it carried a pitiable sound of the bewailing for children. But there's more to it than that. So we're going to translate this passage one more time. <laughs> While the sense of the verb threneo was carried over for this translation from the King James Version, the final clause may have literally, literally been translated of the lamenting for children. But the verb threneo may also describe the singing of dirges, like funeral dirges. And in that sense, a wordplay seems to have been made. And 
even more appropriately for wisdom, where the clause may have been translated as of the singing of dirges for children, as opposed to the children of Israel, who had sang the praises of their fathers. And in that case, and changing the word order slightly to better accommodate our English vernacular, if we were making a full translation of wisdom, then we would translate both verses 9 and 10 together to read. For secretly, the righteous children of good men sacrificed and in harmony acted upon the divine law for the saints to partake equally of the same things, both of good and of danger, while already singing the praises of the fathers. But in response, there sounded the discordant or unharmonious, the discordant cry of the enemies, and it carried a pitiable sound of the singing of dirges for the children. Continuing Solomon's description of that faithful night in verse 11, the master and the servant were punished after one manner, and like as the king, so suffered the common person. Solomon informing us that the kings suffered in the loss of the firstborn, supports our assertion that Tuthmos III was the king of the Exodus. As we had said in earlier presentations, Tuthmos III, <coughs> I'm sorry, Tutmos III had lost his first son, his eldest son, so that a junior son had succeeded him as Pharaoh. Tutmos IV, I believe. So losing his eldest son, there's no explanation in the Egyptian funerary inscriptions as to why that son was lost. If he died in the night of the firstborn, that would make perfect sense, and the lack of an perfect sense. So, as we saw when Solomon began this description of the first Passover, language in verse 2 of Wisdom chapter 17, where it says, For when the unrighteous men thought to oppress the holy nation, seems to indicate that these men merely supported the proposal of that new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, who had proposed the oppression, as it is described in the first chapter of Exodus. So for that, they deserve this punishment. However, it is also often evident in Scripture that even the good men of a nation suffer punishment on account of the wicked. This we see in Ezekiel chapter 21, where punishment is pronounced upon Judah, and the word of Yahweh says, Son of man, Set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophecy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, Therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh from the south to the north. So while it is not plausible that every Egyptian was evil, 
or that every firstborn child did anything worthy of death. Ostensibly, it is immaterial if Yahweh so chooses to destroy a nation for its collective wickedness or for the benefit of those whom he had chosen. As we had explained earlier, it is a clear matter of the historical record that once the dark of night had stricken the Egyptians, the nation never again recovered from its former glory, but instead had entered a long period of stagnation and decline. At the same time, the Israelites, having enjoyed the light of day, went on to become a great kingdom. And now, even in their subsequent punishment, they became a great nation and a company of nations. So once again we see that they were chastised for their correction, whether they themselves are aware of it or not, and certainly the vast majority of them are not. But ever since that first Passover, the light of day has been with them, and those who can see it and understand must know that the first Passover remains a type for things which are still to come. As we have already cited Paul of Tarsus, where he declared that Christ is our Passover. In a Messianic prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 28, we read an unfulfilled prophecy of Christ where it says, because ye have said, speaking to the children of Israel, because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion, Christ, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line. <coughs> and righteousness to the plummet, and hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand, when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goes forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. So this is the coming Passover, which all Christians should await. Then we shall all truly see the light of day. Yahweh willing, we shall continue with Wisdom chapter 18 and Solomon's description of the first Passover and the punishment of Egypt in the weeks to come. Next Friday, we are on the road for the weekend, and we will hear from Dr. Michael Hill. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.